Hi, hello and welcome to the Back to the Pavilion podcast. Thank you for listening today and every day that you do. And thank you to everyone who gets in touch as well. It really means the world to me when you do. The best way to get in touch is on Twitter, where you can tweet me at, at Lloydzilla. Today's guest played for three counties where he scored over 21,500 first-class runs, which saw him play three tests and eight ODIs for England, and arguably should have played more. Since then, he's worked in and out of the game, and he's currently working with his son. So join me as we welcome John Morris, and apologies for some of the background noise during it. John's workman wanted to join in on the podcast too. But let's join me as we welcome John Morris back to the pavilion. No, it, it was a decision I, I came to, really. The, um, the, the thing I'd noticed with cricket was that there was never a good time to finish, really, because the game was the champagne lifestyle on a beer income. But we always knew that we wanted, or you would need to have a, a career after cricket. So, you know, we're not like the multi-million pound footballers who, you know, can choose and, and, and really look to their lives in a different way. You've got to find a career path when you finish. Uh, and I finished in, um, in cricket in 2001, what was I, 38, to, to take a path in business, which was to be an agent, um, which I did for a number of years. I set my business up. Um, and thoroughly enjoyed it, you know, but we got to a point where every man and his dog wanted to be an agent and it was getting harder and harder and harder to compete. Um, and I only did football, by the way. I didn't do, I didn't do cricket at all. There wasn't really the need for cricket, although I did move a couple of three players around. Um, AJ Harris joined me at Knotts from Derby. Uh, Richard Unworth came to Derby. Tim Bunton to Derby, Mal, uh, Mal um, get it right in a minute, Matt Kassar to North Ants. You know, Steve Harmison was a, a cricketer that I looked after for quite a number of years. So, you know, the agency side of it, although I say I didn't do much cricket, I did do the odd deal, but I, I was more interested in the football side as a career path, really, because... You know, cricket had been my life for so long. I wanted something different. So that kept me involved in sport, but it was something completely different than cricket. How, I mean, like, completely different. How different, what, what different challenges did the, the football jobs, you know, pose rather than the cricket jobs? Um, just more noughts on the end of the contracts. <laughs> No, the, the, my biggest problem was the fact that I wasn't involved in football. Mm. Although sport was the common denominator, um, people didn't see me as football orientated. So I had a partner who was with me, a guy called Neil Sillett, who's the son of John Sillett, who was the Coventry City manager that won the FA Cup in 86. Um, so Sill and I had this partnership in the business. And he was very good then at introductions and everything else. So, you know, although I did know a lot of people in football, managers were older people and of a generation that I didn't know, really. And then we got um, players now, if you like, such as, let's say, Dean Saunders, Steve Bruce, Lee Bowyer who were lads that I know really, really well from playing days and, and what have you, who were friends of mine, who are now managers. So it might have been easier for me to start now than it probably would have been back then. Ever consider going back into it? Occasionally. Um, occasionally get the odd phone call, can I help out on one or two bits, um, which I always like to try and do if I can. Um, Steve Bruce, the last deal I did was with Steve. Um, at Hull, when he was a manager at Hull. So we, you know, we, we got involved in that deal. Although the player wasn't our player, we helped facilitate it uh, and made it work for him. So, you know, that was, that was quite nice. Things like that are always quite nice to me. Is it, when you say facilitate, is it just, is it contract negotiations or are there other things involved as well? No, it was, it was getting the release from the player from another club. So, it, you know, they're a bit more complex at times than you can probably, imagine sometimes these deals and there might be four or five different people involved in the contract 
but in, in reality, it's just finding the, the link that can make it all happen, which I would say I was able to do uh, with that particular deal. Was it always going to be, was that always the plan then to become an agent when you finished playing? Yeah, I, it sort of it fell in my lap a little bit because uh, I was playing at Durham and uh, Rob Lee, a Newcastle player who's a great friend of mine prior to me working for him, um, had fallen out with his agent. Uh, and had fallen out with Rude Hullett um, when he took over as manager. So I was leaking bits of stories to the press through the, through the cricket guys, and they couldn't understand where all this was coming from, you know. So um, it, it worked in our favour, that particular one, but I wouldn't advise anybody doing that, to be fair. But in reality, to, to that story was the fact that uh, Rude Hullett uh, sort of got rid of Rob in his mind to caused problems with the senior players so he could have a, a clean out um, and didn't give Rob a shirt number and all the rest of it. So I started dropping bombs in left, right and centre. Um, they didn't know where it was coming from. And Rob then asked me to be his agent. And um, still friends today. Um, we're in a business together. Um, you know, so, you know, it was a positive thing. that I worked for a friend. Um, but that got me on the path of thinking that this is something that I'd like to get involved in. How would, I mean, to become that, how much preparation is there? Are there exams or, you know, courses to run to, that you, to qualify to be an agent? Or can anyone just kind of go, I, I want to be a sports agent? Um, well, at, at first you had to, when I first started, you had to deposit 100,000 Swiss francs uh, with FIFA as a bond in case you made a cock-up of something that they could penalise you with. Uh, that that came away from uh, that, well, I don't know what year it was, but then you had to sit an exam and pass the exam to be a registered agent. But I believe that that has changed again now and anybody can apply to become a, a representative of a player and you don't have to go through those... Uh, systems anymore. That's why there are so many agents all of a sudden. You know, I think when we first started, there was about a hundred, around a hundred agents. There's probably over uh, three thousand, probably more now. But if you divide that by the amount of players there are, you know, you're not going to have a, a lot of players to choose from. Why do you think there's more agents in football than there are in cricket? Is it just money, or are cricketers more independent? Um. I think there's a bit of both in that, to be honest. I think those players who need representation are the star players, but how many are there? You know, that's the thing. And, um, you know, you're talking about 18 counties, probably, let's work it back. You know, you've got, say, 20 people under contract for England. You know, you don't need a big pool to have the star player. But having said that, I believe there's so many more agents now involved in cricket that... Um, you know, Neil Fairbrother is another one of my old friends who's been running a successful agency for a number of years. But he has Stokes, he's got the England captain, you know, I think he's got Butler. You know, these are big players. So the contract element to that is going to be quite, you know, exclusive. And also the commercial side of it. But they're few and far between those sort of deals for the county player. But I understand county players have a lot of agents now as well. So, you know, perhaps it's something I should consider again. Who knows? And then, was was it from agent to, to coach? Was that the path that you took, or was there anything in between? Um, yeah, there was a lot in between, really. We, I finished with the agency. I, I got fed up of cold Tuesday nights watching Derby County Reserves at Burton Albion, if I'm honest, after about five years. Um, it wasn't always the Premier League and, you know, high-flying. It was, it was some very interesting you know, sort of games you'd go to, you know, to watch a player. And to be honest, it was hard work. I was doing a lot of miles um, and, and it changed, you know, the way, you know, sporting directors operated and everything else. And you weren't dealing with the football people as much. So I didn't enjoy it. I uh, got offered, uh, you know, something for the business and decided to move on. Um, and then I, I went into uh, doing some property uh, did some properties abroad with a, a local business here in Derby, uh, which was running great until the, the crash in 2008, <laughs> which nobody foresaw. Um, so that caught us a little bit off uh, cold. And then um, 
I got offered the uh, the job at Derbyshire for that 2008 season. Uh, I started in the 2007, I should say. So when was the crash? 2006? Mm. Um, it might have been around there. Um, so yeah, I went into Derbyshire 2007, left at the beginning of 2011, took a bit of time out and then went working for um, a friend of mine who um, had a business in the Northeast. I was a consultant in the lighting uh, business for about four or five years. So I was traveling all over the world at that point. I was flying to Cape Town every six weeks. I was then flying into Trinidad every, within that six weeks and I'd probably have a trip to Dubai or Houston as well as in that six week period. Then it would all start again. So um, after about four or five years of that, that, you know, that was becoming a bit tiresome as well. And again, um, through no fault of our own in the business, um, the oil price went down from sort of two, uh, from $80 a barrel to less than $40 a barrel overnight. And the business started to struggle. So as a consultant in the business, you know, I was one of the first to, uh, to be out the door. And, and that's when I decided then that I was going to do something that was more home-based. Um, and I set my wine business up and here we are still three years on. I, that, the Derbyshire coaching job, was that an easy decision for you to make when when you're offered that? Um, yeah, I think so. I think it was one of those decisions that if, if I hadn't have taken it or hadn't have done it, I'd probably regretted it. Um, in hindsight, it's something probably I shouldn't have done uh, because I've, you know, I don't go to Derbyshire cricket uh, because of the way it all finished for me. And um, you know, I fell out with quite a number of people over it, to be honest. So, and people I don't see anymore, but that's, that's just what happens sometimes in, in cricket and in sport, but it did leave a very nasty and bitter taste uh, in my mouth the way it happened. And I can't go into too much detail because of NBAs, but, um, you know, the, the way it did happen was un unseen. And, um, you know, I thought we were building a decent squad and a, a squad that could compete. After four years, we got it going in a direction I felt was the right direction. And from literally nowhere, out of the blue, it was the rug was pulled from under my feet uh, during a game, you know, halfway through the, the third of the season gone, where, which we were competing in. So, you know, it just did leave such a bitter taste that that was me really finished uh, with cricket, really. I was going to say, did that whole experience put you off going and trying to do a similar role elsewhere? Yeah, it did. But it, also what you've got to remember is that, again, there's only 18 counties. And, you know, am I going to go and move to Sussex or to Essex or not that I would necessarily get the jobs. What I'm saying is that, you know, it's a big upheaval to do that when you're my age. And, um, you know, what would I have been then? So it's 11 years ago. So I'm 45 ish. You know, I'm, I'm looking to, to settle down, really, not be running around all over the place. Although, as I say, I went overseas for sort of four or five years doing the lighting business. But, um, you know, I, I wasn't sort of prepared to move the family and move home and, and do anything in that environment. Because for one minute, you might be working normally. And next minute, like happened in Derbyshire, uh, you're no longer required. So it didn't seem a, the right thing for me to continue with, to be honest. Had you, you know, with all, you, you've done so much, was there, did you do much planning and preparation before you actually stopped playing? Had you done things like coaching badges or anything like that? Or was it just, you know, I'm going to go with, with what, I'm, what I can do? Yeah, I was qualified to a point uh, at cricket. I'd got um, my level three certificate, um, but I, I did my level four whilst I was working for Derbyshire. So I'm, I'm pretty well qualified, uh, but I, I just did them over the years, really. I remember doing my first badge when I was probably about 18, 19 years of age. I was very young. Um, and then the second one, I think I did when I was at Durham. And third one, maybe at Durham as well. And then obviously, um, because you've got time on your hands to do things in the winter and, and such like, um, I thought it was the right thing to do, just get some qualifications behind me from a coaching perspective. So I'm qualified now if I wanted to, you know, to apply for international jobs. Um, but as I say, it's not something that's, that's on my, my list these days. I don't, 
I, I don't think about cricket. If I'm not around cricket, mm. I don't think about cricket. But if you find yourself around cricket, then you're involved in it. And it's, it's never the twain, really. I think you've just got to be one thing or the other. Uh, and I've chose to come away from it now. Uh, you come away from now and you, you run your, your lovely little wine bar in Duffield, just outside Derby. Was that, you know, is that sort of like the, the dream job for you to have that little family business and with wine and, you know, I know you run it with your son. Is that, was that the idea? Um, sort of. It's it, it, it grown over this past three years, really, because um, I had a tiny little office in the village, uh, which was very small, and I felt very confined in it at times. So I'd, I'd go to work, I'd go to the office to get away from home, really, if, if you know what I mean. If you work at home, it can be quite off-putting at times. So I, I rented this little office, and as I say, it was very tiny. And then this building came available down the road, which is the old NatWest Bank. When we talk about what we enjoy in life, um, I love my cricket, I love my football, I like sport, but I also enjoyed my wine. So, you know, my knowledge of wine had grown over a period of time. Um, you know, I first went to a vineyard when I was about 20 years of age uh, in South Africa and had one of the best days out I've ever had, you know, and got taken behind the scenes and shown the vineyard, show how it worked. And so whenever I went to, a, to countries such as South Africa, Australia, and New Zealand, I'd always make a point of going to some of the vineyards out of interest. So you're naturally progressing towards that without realizing, if you like. So when all these other bits and pieces that we've worked on and, and worked with, some our fault that didn't work, obviously, uh, and you know, some of these things that we were getting great you know, sort of rewards from uh, that fell apart because nothing we could do about it, the, the, the climate at the time, I thought, you know what, it's time to just do something for us that would be nice and enjoyable and wine was my passion and my interest. So it doesn't feel like work, this doesn't. It feels like we go to do something we enjoy, which is what cricket always was. You know, I'd have played cricket, whether I'd turned professional or not, because I enjoyed it. This feels great because I'm, I'm making a living out of doing something I enjoy again. So not so I didn't enjoy doing the other things, but this feels like real enjoyment and, and good fun. And um, I've always been somebody that enjoys socialising and getting out there and, you know, enjoying a glass of wine or a beer with my pals. So this just, is, the party comes to us now. Uh, and it's been going great until obviously, you know, the COVID situation that we're all living through and, and now times are difficult again, you know. But again, we can't control that. There's nothing we could do about it. So... You know, you just accept it for what it is and move on. Have you been able to combat COVID with, you know, deliveries or anything like that? Or have you just had to shut down pretty much? The first lockdown delivery kept us sane and kept us going, really. Um, without that, we, we may well have struggled um, with the business. Um, there's, a, there's a huge gap in between what the government have done which, you know, I applaud in many ways, um, you know, the furloughing system and what they did for the self-employed. But the, 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 the industry that we are, the alcohol industry, which has had such a kick in, um, you know, restrictions on the amount of people we can get in. We've become the police for the industry. People come through the door. It doesn't feel right that we're selling people to wear the mask, check in, sit down, put your mask on to go to the bathroom. You know, it, it just, it's not what the industry is about. Um, 10 o'clock closing. Um, we've had no VAT relief. We've had, we've had very little given to our industry, to, even though we probably pay more tax than most businesses throughout the year collectively to the government. We haven't had any, um, any support. So, yes, it's made it difficult. And also, and I, I have two hats with this, but it, the way I structure the companies, um, you know, we, we do it in a certain way to, so we can maximise our tax relief and all the rest of it. But we fall through the gaps, so I don't get any furlough, I don't get any, any um, self-employed relief or anything of that nature. So it's been tough from that perspective, but the deliveries did keep us going during the first lockdown. And this lockdown, we're told, is only till the 2nd of December. So am I losing any sleep over a month? No, not really. I could do without it. But if it goes on any longer then we'll be back to that situation where deliveries will really need to be our lifeblood again. But Christmas is coming, so you'd expect to have the delivery system, you know. Yeah. 
and it's got his wine bar's called Bradman's. Why not Morrison's? Well, because I did it with my son, I really couldn't call it Morrison's. Uh, yeah. Um, or Morrison's. I thought it was a bit too, too pretentious, if you like, to, to name it after yourself. Listen, I know I can play cricket, but I wasn't anything of a big, big, big name or anything like that. But um, I've always been a Don Bradman fan and was fortunate enough to meet him in Australia very briefly. Found him very impressive. Um, so I started collecting Bradman memorabilia after the Ashes tour in 1990. Um, and, and had a lot of Bradman memorabilia for quite a long time. So when we were looking to name it, we were coming up with all kinds of names, you know, as you can imagine. And it was actually my wife, Sally, that, that said, why don't you call it Bradman's? And I thought, wow, you know, what a, a great name. Because if you get the cricket connotation, then it works. But if you don't, it's just Bradman's, for Bradman's sake, you know, and it's a strong name on its own. And it's a nod from me to, to the world's greatest ever batsman, you know. So... That was it, really. The only problem is with it, of course, he's an Australian, but celebrate. <laughs> and you say there that you've collected Bradman memorabilia. Do you have memorabilia from your own playing days up and about around the house? Or I know you have some in your wine bar, but is it is it on show for people or is it hidden away or given away? Or There's absolutely no uh, Job Morris memorabilia at all on show in my house. Um, literally we are moving in as I say at the moment this is very basic at the minute but there is no pictures there is no anything on the walls here I'm, I'm going to build myself an office in the garden at some point so we might put a bit up in there but no I've never been one for, for showing personal stuff now yeah of course I've got I've got my England uh, cap on show in the, in the wine bar but that's about that's about it um, you know, there's other, there's plenty of Bradman memorabilia, but there isn't any really of myself, to be fair. No. I, I always look before I interview anyone, John, and on eBay at the moment, if you if you want the someone selling a signed photo of you for nine ninety nine in oh. uh, on eBay, so you know, money well spent. I feel. I'm, I'm surprised it's as much as that. <laughs> <laughs> there's a. Sign, I won't be buying it. Let's put it that way. <laughs> There's a signed dinner menu for about 18 quid if you want that from a, a football dinner that you're at. So clearly well, the, the John Morris name still adds value for people. Well, it, it might have been John Morris, the, uh, the football agent. There's another football agent, John Morris, who looks right. after, after Vardy. So uh, I get very confused sometimes. I've, I've had a few phone calls from managers asking me about players that I, I have no idea about, and it's the other agent they're trying to get hold of. It's quite comical. <laughs> It's definitely you. It's it's definitely you know former former England and Derbyshire batsman. So unless right. he's that as well. What what dinner was that then? If you don't mind me asking. I I don't know. I have to have a look. I <laughs> I, it, I didn't didn't pay that much attention. Right. Um, you you career off the field. How much of your skills and things that you acquired on the field have been able to transfer to to your you know either business or coaching career off it. I think cricket, um, it teaches you an awful lot about life, if you like, in, in reality to when you first start as a young player. You, you know, you go into a dressing room environment with senior players. You know, I was lucky when I first went to Derbyshire. You know, we've got Jeff Miller, Bob Taylor, Mike Hendrick, David Steele, Peter Kirsten, John Wright, you know, who were exceptional players. Uh, but of an age, Barry Wood uh, from Lancashire, John Hampshire, you know, they were, they were older, <coughs> excuse me, they were older players <coughs> who had, had massive life experience as well. So, you know, that gets passed down. It wasn't just a cricket knowledge. You know, I remember when I first went for my first mortgage that I ever got, you know, one of the cricketers told me all, you know, how that worked, you know, I had no idea. So, you know, when you're in, in close proximity with people for a long period of time, um, as you were for six months back in those days, you know, you picked up a lot of, you know, influential information that was going to stay with you. And, you know, cricket taught you life, you know, socially as well as other things. So I think cricket was, you said it earlier, cricket is quite independent. Um, but I think by nature, as much as anything, we just because we have to be, we cannot rely just on solely 
the income of, of the game gave you as a county player. Yeah, you know, people like my generation, David Gower, probably a bit older than me, but both, and whether they were the big stars, you know, I'm sure they've done exceptionally well out of the game and, and, and you know, commentating and everything else. But not everybody gets that, that level. So you've, you've got to be savvy. You've got to be, you know, on the ball with what you want to do in the future. So, you know, as I say, not everybody thinks through to the next part. And I think that's a massive problem. You know, we look at the, the mental health issues that players have. It's more highlighted these days. Those things were still around back in those days. They just weren't highlighted. In fact, probably swept under the carpet as a bit of a sign of weakness if that was the situation, whereas now things are more open. So again, you know, it's giving you that life skills and things that you require, I think, in the future to prepare yourself for what you want to do. I mean, you, your son plays cricket to a, you know, a really good son as well. He was, I know he's on Knotts' books. Did you, you know, give him advice about if this doesn't work out, you need to make sure that you've got something else? Is, is that a conversation you remember having with him? With who, sorry, I missed who you said. With, with your son. Oh, with Tom? Yeah. yeah um, well, Tom was on the academy down at, uh, at Trent Bridge for a couple of years with uh, Chris Tolley. Uh, thoroughly enjoyed it. He was a talented wicketkeeper. You know, he had great hands. Uh, could give it a wallop with the bat. Um, wasn't technically minded with the bat, but he was, he was a talented player. But it was actually Tom who came to me at one point uh, and said, Dad, this isn't really what I want to do, you know. And I, which I admired him for, you know, I've, I've got no problem with that. He wasn't doing it for, for me. That's the last thing I wanted. He, I wanted him to succeed if he, in whatever he chose to do. But I didn't want him to be a cricketer or think he should be a cricketer because I was. So, you know, that, that I quite admired in my son at an early age for having that ability to take, tell me that. Because, you know, if he didn't want to do it, he was taking the place of somebody else that did. Mm. And, um, so, you know, he's, he's gone on his own path. He, he, he went to work for BMW. Um, so he's BMW trained, in public, you know, in servicing and all that side of stuff. You know, his face-to-face -face abilities is, is fantastic, um, which he's naturally got, but he's also learned those techniques. And he's brought that ability with him into our business. So, you know, Tom's very important and a uh, big part of our business. You know, he's, he's very important to us, actually. You, know, you talk about those face-to-face -face abilities. Do you think that's something that cricket taught you to, to be able to do and then to bring into your business? I would hope so. Um, I think that, again, where you look at you know, life learnings is that you've got to be comfortable in the surroundings you are. And, you know, if you, if you think about the people that you've met in life, um, you know, it's, it's quite humbling, if you like, to be in the company of great people, but it's also, you've got to remember where you come from. So it's, it's the relevance to everybody is important. And I think if you can handle kings and queens, if you like, the same as you do the people you went to school with, then that's, that's the people that you are. And I've, I've always tried to be that way. So, you know, um, I hope that comes across with my son as well as myself. Do you have, you know, in the same way that people have on-field highlights, do you have highlights from your, your career after playing cricket where you kind of go, you know what, that's something that I'm really going to remember for a long time? Um, yeah, I think so. I think a lot of the work that I did in, in South Africa um, stays with me to this day. We, we, I first went to South Africa in 1982 in the height of apartheid, uh, not really being politically savvy. Um, not really interested in anything really other than playing cricket and had the opportunity to go down to Durban for six months, um, which was an unbelievable experience at 18, 19 years of age. And then going back for another two years, but working in a, in a, in a cricketing environment, coaching. Mm. So I'd, we were known as the banana boys back in those days that went out to the schools um, and, and coached Monday to Friday two till four o'clock, something like that. Played cricket at the weekends, practiced myself Tuesdays and Thursdays, um, played at weekends. That was it. That was a great existence, you know, but it, that was the beginning of the understanding of, of the world, if you like, because all of a sudden, you know, I'm sharing a dressing room with Michael Holden and Devin Malcolm, 
um, and going to South Africa and seeing black people being treated, you know, indifferently, as we all know. So it didn't, it didn't feel right. Um, and then I had the opportunity to go to, to Australia. Um, and then I went back to South Africa in 88 um, as captain of Gripples, Gripland West, um, and started working in the townships, um, coaching cricket, obviously. And I thoroughly enjoyed that. That was a challenge. Um, but I, it felt right. It felt as though it was something that we should be doing rather than just going out to enjoy ourselves in the sun in South Africa. And, you know, I thoroughly enjoyed that period of time. And then I went into, um, uh, I obviously got picked for England. I went back to South Africa uh, in 93, again to Griquas. Um, carried on the coaching. And then I went into Transvaal for three months. Eddie Barlow offered me a, a job uh, in, at the Transvaal, um, where I went in as the one of the first uh, professionals in a multiracial club, um, having apartheid broken down. And I feel as though, that well, we, it's well documented cricket was a huge part of what went on in, in South Africa to break down the apartheid regimes. So I feel very proud of that work, you know, even though we, it's unsung, it's behind the scenes, going into Soweto in Alexandria, Kailisha, you know, these townships and coaching cricket was part of that and getting black children interested in, in playing the game. So, you know, that was, they were important times really for me. And, you know, I always felt then when I was coming back into the dressing room at Derby or wherever, that it, it was relevant to be giving my time in South Africa the way I was, but also then looking at my teammates in the eye and saying, I feel as I'm doing the right thing, you know, which I believe I was. So, I, yeah, they, those parts were, were important and I'm really proud of, to be honest. What about on the field? Have, you know, do you look back and have career highlights on the field that really stand out for you? Of course you do. You know, you, the one thing about the game, you don't expect to get to where you get to sometimes. So, you know, as I said earlier, I'd have played the game for fun um, if I hadn't been a professional. So you play the game to enjoy it and it takes you on your journey and where you end up in your journey. Sometimes to this day, I'm surprised at, if you like. So, you know, I've just talked about going to South Africa and how important that was in, in my life, you know. Um, but going, you know, making my debut for Derbyshire. Um, you know, in the first team. It was against Pakistan in 1982. Um, touring team, they always threw a, a young gun in the team and I played, I, I didn't get any runs. I got six and 12. I remember it like yesterday though. <clears throat> Having played 360 first class games after that. Um, but I can remember that game as plain as day. Uh, my first first class 50, my first first class 100, my first double 100. You know, they're all milestones in the game. They're all personal to you. Um, but winning a couple of trophies for Derbyshire was was amazing. Um, you know, we're not one of the most successful counties. You know, I think they won the championship in the 30s. And then it was 1981 uh, when they won the NatWest Trophy, which I was there at, but I didn't play in, obviously. And then we got to the final of the Benson Hedges in 1988. We won the Refuge Assurance Cup in 1990 and then won the Benson Hedges in 1993. So, you know, th those two wins were amazing. Just getting to the final in 88, again, I could probably never imagine. Um, I remember my dad took me to Lords to watch a semi-final, uh, Glamorgan, Middlesex, and it rained and we didn't see a ball bowled. Um, but it was the first time I ever went to Lords, and it just poured down all day. Went down on the train and there I was now playing in the final, um, you know, a number of years later. So they're, they're little things that you always remember. Um, getting the call to play for England. You know, that, that was amazing. I mean, Ted Dexter and call me your name, never mind. So, you know, he got me mixed up with you, Morris, but that's another story. <laughs> uh, he, had a, he, had, he, he once called me the physio as well, playing for the NCC. He thought I was the physio. Um, but that's another, again, it, they're all funny things now, but at the time, it thought, Christ, you know, what have you got to do? Um, and then, you know, Graham Gooch telling me that I was going to play in the in the first test at Lords. Amazing, you know. I, I went to a secondary modern school in Crewe 
Um, there was no other first-class cricketers from crew at that point. Um, I was the first, and I was playing for England, you know, going to get a test match under my belt. Amazing. So, and then getting picked to go to Australia, again, highlights, you know, that you, you look back on. If there's a tour to go on, I think, of course, it would, everybody would want to go to Australia. Um, and getting the opportunity to do that was amazing. So, yeah, there's a number of highlights all involved in the way your career stretches, you know. You, you mentioned that you remember your first game. Do you remember your last game? I do, yeah. Um, well, my last first-class game uh, was against Derbyshire hmm. um, in 2001. I'd said to Clive Rice um, that I was, I'd made my debut for Derbyshire in first-class cricket. It'd be nice to finish against them. There was two games left of the season, I think. Um, which, yeah, I said, we weren't going to win anything. We were not in any position. I said, it'd be great to play a couple of kids and give them some experience. I'm not going to be here next year. Could I make my last game against Derbyshire at Trent Bridge? Um, and I hit the winning runs, which was even better, you know. So um, I think I got something like 25 or 30 not out. Um, hit Liam Walton for a, for a four to win the match. Walked off and um, the lads had bought me a cigar the size of a, well, it was, it was huge, great big cigar. And there was some champagne. I bought some beers. And uh, I'd, I'd just taken my pads off and my trousers, still got my thigh pad on, and um, there was a knock on the door. And um, Brian Clough had read in the paper that it was my last game of cricket. And um, he came in to wish me well, give me a big hug, sat down and held court for an hour. <laughs> <laughs> Which is brilliant, to be honest. But, um, so, that, you know, yeah, I do remember that. And then the last game of cricket I ever played professionally was a televised game, again, for, uh, for Notts um, against Leicester. We needed to win to stay up in Division 1. Leicester needed to win to win the trophy. And if Kent won and we beat Leicester, Kent won the trophy. We beat Leicester. I got man of the match. And um, Kent won the trophy. So <laughs> that was that. And Never it was televised, allowed. which was quite nice, to be fair. Never allowed in Leicestershire again. <laughs> Correct, yeah. Paul Mixer still doesn't speak to me. <laughs> um, you mentioned that Australia tour, and obviously I'm sure you're asked about it all the time, the, the Tiger Moth incident. Has that helped you off the field as much as it hindered you on the field with England? I'd still get asked to speak at dinners, um, and I can charge what the fine was. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, I think I look back on that as a regret. I have to in some respects. Would I still do it if I'd have known what the issues or the complications of it could have been afterwards? No, I wouldn't have done it. But it was never sent out or set out to be um, anything other than a bit of fun. And I do think that they overreacted and the way they treated myself and David probably afterwards um, for what was uh, a prank just to give a bit of spirit, a bit of lift to the team. It wasn't a great tour. We weren't playing great cricket um, and it just seemed like a bit of a bit of a, a fun to lighten a bit of spirits and, you know, give a bit of team bonding if you like. But they, they completely thought we were undermining the, the structure. It's been well documented. I'm not telling tales out of school here, but, you know, David and, and Graham hadn't been getting on particularly well on that tour. I was a first-time tourist. That nothing to do with me. I wasn't getting involved in any of that. And, um, you know, when, when this happened, I, I, I overheard David Gower speaking to Alan Lamb on the stairwell. Um, and I just said, look, are you planning on going to one of these planes? And he, David said, yeah. So, well, I'm out. I'll come with you. You know, it's a bit of fun. We'll have a laugh. You know, give the lads a bit of something to have a laugh at. And uh, that was it. What, what caused the biggest issue, I think, with David uh, and Graham afterwards was the fact that we went back and had a picture taken and, and David told him he'd been for a run, mm. uh, which I don't think that, that was the problem. I think that's where it all, it all started. And I was caught then in the crossfire of the whole lot. I mean, I got 132 in that game against Queensland and never played for England again after that. Mm. You know, so I don't think as many players can say that, that their last innings for England was 132. I mean, I know Graham Fowler got a double hundred, I think, and um, never played again after that. But, you know, and that was in a test match. 
but I don't think the crime fits, uh, fitted the punishment. And I think the way I was treated afterwards, um, I, I thought was wrong, you know, but what could I do? Um, you know, you're on the tour then still for a number of weeks. Uh, I played in the one day team in the Benson Hedges and done okay, considering I'd batted in every position, you know, going, can you bat there this week? Can you bat there this week? You know, I'd open, I batted six, I batted three, I, batted four. I was all over the place and I still think I did all right. But when it came to New Zealand, we went down to play three games in New Zealand. I didn't even make the, the team for that. So I knew then that things were, probably the writing was on the wall. Um, you know, I'm not suggesting I should have played before other players. Uh, that's not, but I felt as though I'd done enough to warrant another go at times. Um, in 93, you know, I played so well in 93 county cricket uh, and got good scores against the fast bowlers. Um, and Keith Fletcher actually said to me at one point, um, West Indies this winter, would you be up for it? And I, I said, yeah, of course I would, you know. You know I'd love to have another go. Um, Never even got a mention. So, you know, they're the things that you know that that was when I, I blotted my copybook. And if that was it, because I can't think of anything else, um, then I don't think the crime fitted the punishment, to be honest. But like you say, you'd still get asked to, to do things. Do you think, had you not done it, you, you might not have still been getting those speaking engagements? Well, probably not, no. But... Uh, um, I, I, you can see it's hindsight, isn't it? You don't know. I mean, the, the other story they obviously like is the Brian Lara story. Mm. He got 501 against Durham. Um, and I hit him on the head on 497 with a bouncer. Um, so I know I'm the only man in the history of the game to hit somebody on the head on 497. Yeah, and it's a great story, but and, and factually true. The fact that he had three goes at it before it hit him on the head is another story. Um, but, you know, they're, they're stories of games that... Uh, history games, you know, the, the Brian Lara 501, will that ever be beaten? Probably Hanif Mohammed never thought his, his innings would ever be beaten, but there it was. It was a world record and I bowled the ball at him. He, he got the 501 off, so, you know, there you go. You talk about your bowling there. You took one list-day wicket in your career. Do you remember that? Is that one that, who was it? Was it someone major or was it a tail ender that you nerdled out? A list A wicket? No, I don't. I, I have no idea. I even no, no, I don't know. <laughs> and if you told me his name. You might. I might know. But then. No, I, I just looked. It just I always try and look for something that someone who's done one thing. Yeah. All right. I, I I got eight first class wickets. You did. Um, and I think I can name them. Um, Peter Hartley, Hugh Morris, uh, John Crawley. Uh, Carr, John Carr. Um, oh, the big Australian fast bowler, um, great bowler, Lyland Lenz. I've got his name, McGraw. Um, McGraw, yeah, Glenn McGraw. Got him out. That, does that count? Um, so there's five out, out of however many. So there you go. When I um, when I spoke to Chris Adams, he talked. I talked to him about the wickets he'd taken, and he talked. Oh, I was one of them. Yeah. <laughs> He also talked about one that he took when um, you caught it and he reckons he turned around and there was a look on your face of, should I catch this or should I drop it because it's off careers? <laughs> did, that, did that ever go through your mind? No, never. <laughs> never, ever. I would never do that. Um, I, I remember a, a toss-up um, getting some runs against Lancashire, you know, one of these contrived uh, results that we were trying to get. And Neil Fairbrother, who again, one of my, my mates, we've known Neil since I was 13 years of age. And um, Neil was bowling at me, and I, he bowled me this horrible full toss, and I top edge whopped it. And Wazim Akram was at mid wicket, and Neil screamed at it, Catch it! <laughs> <laughs> of course, he set off like a train, and he caught it, and I had to get off. Set me off, Neil did. <laughs> I was a bit disappointed in that, I must admit, considering we'd only got about four balls to go or something before we got the total, you know. But there you go. And you're saying that you were one of um, Grizzlies' wickets. Does that... Yeah. Does he rub yeah, it in? I remember it. I, we were play, I was playing for Knotts at, um, at Hove and uh, he bought me this dirty wine and I, I leapt at it and dragged it on. 
So, yeah, very disappointing. I think yeah. I got 100 second innings, though, if memory serves me correctly. I'm not 100% sure about that. In the scorebook, it says bold, and I'm sure that's all they'll tell you. That's exactly. There are no pictures in the scorebook, is there? Um, I always ask, John, and I, I, I have an obsession with squad numbers. You wore, I, I, I'm reliably informed for knots you wore number five. Does that number have any significance to you? Did you choose it or were you just given it? Or Not particularly superstitious or anything like that. I don't know why I wore number five. Um, probably the number I was given. <laughs> I, I didn't have any preconceived numbers in my head. Uh, oh, I must have that number or that one, you know. No, I, I was just probably given it. I'm desperate for someone. Everyone keeps saying that, and I'm desperate for someone to, you know, reinflate my bubble and go. Oh, and yeah, no, it's a, it means this and it means that to me. But every, <laughs> uh, just got given it. <laughs> the only superstition I had was I always put my left pad on first. That was it. Any idea where that came from, or just probably you know when you get your first hundred or something like that, you you thought, well, I did that that time, and it just stays with you then. You know, so, um, and, and if I got runs in a shirt that, you know, let's say I've got a score, I'd keep that shirt until I got out. So if I was on a run of form, I could probably whiff a little bit by the end of the week. <laughs> <laughs> you, we talked earlier about, you know, the impact that retirement can have on, on people. What, what advice would you give to a player sort of coming to the end of their career with regards to, or the end of their playing career, what, what would you say to them to, to help them? I think the, the, the way the world is now, and the structures that are involved in, in cricket now, the PCA and such like, do as many courses, get as many qualifications as you can behind you as possible. They're under 12-month contracts, most of the players, or all the players these days. Um, so you've got a lot of time in the winter to, to get yourself qualified. And PCA do an amazing job. They pay for a lot of the courses. Having said that, I've never done one in my life. Um, you know, so that's that generation thing I would suggest. But if you're a young player now, don't think for one minute that you're going to be Ben Stokes and earning however many millions of pounds a year playing in the IPL. Think of it as an opportunity to get something behind you for the future. Um, because not everybody has the careers that they ultimately hope for. So... You know, it's um, sometimes just being a bit more thoughtful and living for today, you've got to think about tomorrow as well. Hey, we all make mistakes. We all get things wrong. We all do things that we probably shouldn't do. Um, but if you're qualified and you've got something behind you you can fall back on, that's the advice I would give you. Um, you, know, you mentioned, you know, promoting better mental health. Do you th what, what more do you think needs to be done around that with, with players towards the end of the careers? Um. Oh. Uh, it's a rather tough question, uh, and, and you know I've I'm very Graham Fowler was my best man, um, although I don't see a huge amount of him. He lives in Durham. I live down here. Um, you know, Graham's publicly gone through the mill with a number of issues and written a couple of good books and, and all the rest of it. But mental health in, back in the day when I was playing, as I say, was seen as probably as a weakness, whereas today it's it's very much acceptable to come out and talk about things. What would I say to senior players? What would I do with players coming towards the end of their careers? I think if you've, the way that the world can be planned for you a bit more now, you can get this help, you can get, you know, we, when I finished playing, it was like, see you, Tara. You know, I knew where I wanted to go. I've seen players who that happened to that they weren't expecting to be told, see you, Tara. They thought they were getting another contract. And they've got nothing to fall back on at all. That's the, that's the bit where they need to be more savvy to, to get themselves prepared for that day. I retired because I wanted to retire. I'm not saying I got another contract in me at Knotts. I don't know. I'd made that decision. But players leave at a point when they want to or they leave when they're told to. It comes. Mm. It, it, it's, it's inevitable. So you've got to be prepared for it. And, and with mental health, uh, I don't really know how to answer that, to be honest. I think, I think your preparation for your future is priority whilst you're playing mm -hmm. and, and have a career path that you, you think you want to go down. You might get down that. You mentioned it yourself. You wanted to be a teacher. 
you know, um, it wasn't quite right for you. So you move on and find something else. But that's life experience, and that that's what you need to you need to live those things to know what you want to do. Um, so my advice is be prepared for when that day comes. And would you say that was the secret to a happy retirement from playing? I think it's a better um, uh, thing for when you do retire to to have something, some knowledge that you've got something to go to. Um, it's never a good time, you know, to finish playing a game that you've loved doing. Uh, there isn't a player probably in any sport that's gone, oh, thank God for that. Mm. You know, I'm, I'd be amazed if there was because they'll look back at things with a lot of fondness. And if only I could have had another year, if only I could have had another, you know, that sort of mentality exists for all players, I'm sure. But, you know, as the, the grand old father time does, it doesn't, doesn't stand still for anybody. So accept the fact that it's going to happen. Uh, as I keep saying, you know, it's be prepared and be ready for that day. I wish I could start my career again tomorrow. I wouldn't, I wouldn't do anything different, probably. I'd go out and enjoy it and play the way I tried to play and make the most of it. It's great to see John enjoying his career post-cricket and the joy he has for his wine bar and working with his son is clear. If you're ever in Duffield, just outside Derby, and fancy a glass of wine, then please do visit Bradman's. It's a great place for a quiet drink. And there's some fantastic cricket memorabilia on the walls too. Next time on the Back to the Pavilion podcast, we hear from a Middlesex legend who also played for England and later became just world-renowned for his written work in the media. He's done so much more, so join me as we welcome Mike Selvey back to the pavilion. That's all from me for today. Thank you for listening. Take care of yourselves and others. Be kind. Bye-bye for now.